This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We were in Manipal's National Park in Zimbabwe on the southern bank of the Zambezi River. Mana is the most beautiful place I've ever worked. It is, it's almost like a paradise. It's, it has so much variety of landscape. It's got the Zambian mountains behind it. It's got the Zambezi River. It's got these beautiful open floodplains and lupani forest and scrub forest. So the diversity of animals there are just incredible. The painted wolf is a really tough animal to follow and I think often people perceive them as brutal killers and they're very far from that. They're one of the most family-oriented animals I've ever worked with. They really care about each other. On the seventh shoot, uh, whilst we were filming, we witnessed a very unusual behaviour, the singing behaviour, and I think we were the first people to ever witness it. Most of the time we saw them, they were just singing. And each time we flew over in the helicopter, you'd see them down on the ground. And you, once you knew what to look for, you could tell they were singing as well. And then it's like, what are they doing? Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's seeking out the secret meanings in the natural world around us. This week, we're getting dressed up in our ceremonial robes. We're learning the steps to ancient dances and memorising the words to sacred songs. We're uncovering rituals in the animal kingdom and asking why animals do some of those mysterious things they do. There's one thing I've learnt about these animals. They are so variable from region to region and even animals very close in space can have massively different behaviours. This is Nick Lyon, one of the producer-directors of the BBC series Dynasties, the series about five animal families struggling to make their way in the world. Nick spent two years in Zimbabwe following painted wolves, also known as African hunting dogs. They kind of look a bit like German shepherds, but uh, instead of those pointy ears, they've got big satellite dish ears. They're mottled black, uh, kind of chestnutty brown and white, which is why they have this name. They kind of look like they've been Jackson Pollocked. Painted wolves are not very sneaky, and despite (laughs) many, many people saying how cooperative they are in the hunt again that has been broadly disproved they're incredibly collaborative after the hunt and it's all very egalitarian in the sharing of the food but the number of times where they could have done a pincer movement or some sort of clever ambush no they see them they get into stalk their ears go back their heads go down and they all run in different directions and it's chaos for the next 10 15 20 minutes until you hear a kill being made and with that pack of 30 honestly under a minute uh, impala could disappear It was like it was hoovered up. (laughs) When you're following a pack for two years, you get to know them pretty well. Get to know all their little quirks and eccentricities, their funny little habits. 
But one behaviour took him completely by surprise. We were in the helicopter. This was on shoot seven, so you know, we spent enough time with them to know pretty much all their behaviours, we thought. But I saw their mouths open, and then it's like, what are they doing? Landed the helicopter near them and approached them. They were very approachable, especially in the wet season when there's no one around. We get out of the helicopter, and the blades spin down, and you just hear this absolute racket going on. And I was like, I've never heard this before. I was very lucky. I didn't have a sound kit on that shoot because that was our helicopter shoot. I thought, well, this is not the one to take the sound kit on, but I wasn't predicting this behaviour. So I actually had my mobile phone, and because it was so close to me, I just popped it in their faces and they sang straight into the phone. It's amazing how good a phone microphone can be because that's, you know, that's what made it into the final cut and it actually sounded really nice. Yeah, we kind of jokingly called it a singing contest, but no one really knows how it works. Some of the dogs seem to be pairing off, so there would be a female with a male resting its head on her shoulders and she'd be singing and he'd be singing at the same time. So that's the second animal coming in, so it's a little duet. And now more of the pack is starting to join. And a number of them had started to couple off like this, so it looked like they were trying to establish a new alpha couple. As to exactly why the pack were singing this haunting song, I'm afraid I can't tell you. This podcast operates a strictly no-spoilers policy, and if you want to find out the full and incredible story, you'll just have to watch the Painted Wolves episode of Dynasties. I can tell you two things, though. Firstly, this was a pack who had recently, and suddenly, found themselves without a leader. And secondly, in Painted Wolf packs, that almost never happens. Leaders are usually ousted by a new leader, an invading male or female from another pack. Old leaders are killed in battle, or allowed to rejoin the rest of the pack in a more subordinate role. This power vacuum at the top, leaving a pack of wolves with no one to turn to, no one to look to for guidance, was unnatural for them. And we think this is how they restored order. None of them had properly established as pairs at this point, and actually there seemed to be some fluidity between the pairings, so it almost felt like they were trying out different pairings to see who would win but it's all very speculative to me I mean we're the first people to ever see it so it's definitely a new behavior it's new to science but we didn't get enough coverage of it for the scientists to really understand it but it's on the radar now as something to investigate so hopefully someone will look at it in the future because it's very very cool it was a magical feeling and because none of us had heard it before we were kind of all looking at each other going this <laughs> but they're also not wanting to talk because we're just enjoying the sound they were kind of constantly surprising animals to work with there was never really a dull moment with them they're very active very inquisitive i could happily spend another two years in the field with them ritual is a word that's imbued with all sorts of human meanings so perhaps we should define our terms what do we mean when we say animals have rituals you might think of a ritual as something that's done in a certain way and in a very particular order. Something where the goal of the behaviour is not directly related to the behaviour itself, but to the performance. Where it's less about doing something than doing it right. 
For both humans and animals, they seem to happen around the big, important events of life. Electing a new leader for the painted wolves, mating, giving birth, and perhaps the most ritualistic of all, death. There are a variety of animals that do interesting things around their dead. Many different kinds of primate species would fall into that category. Different kinds of cetaceans, which are things like dolphins and, and whales. And then, of course, elephants are, are the one I think most people are familiar with. A lot of rodents, for example. So rats will bury cage mates that have been dead for more than a couple of days. So there's there's actually a really wide variety of animals that are attentive to their dead. My name is Kaylee Swift, and I'm a postdoctorate researcher at the University of Washington. Kaylee is particularly interested in the death rites of one very special family of birds, the corvids, or crows. Really, every time it happens, it, it feels sort of magical. I mean, despite being so non-magical, right, it's, it's a completely natural event. But it is amazing how stereotyped this behavior is. Generally, what happens at a crow funeral is the first bird that discovers the body will produce an alarm call. And if you've ever seen crows mobbing a cat or a raptor or anything like that, you're familiar with this really harsh call that they produce, and that's the alarm call. And what that call does is it recruits other neighboring crows from the surrounding area to come in and kind of check it out. So the first bird comes in and scolds, and then all of these other birds join it, and it creates this really ruckus mob, and, and it's just amazing to see, and it, it, it never really ceases to feel astounding to me. And then after about 15 or 20 minutes, they'll just disperse. And that's, that's the main thrust of the behavior that's typically what it looks like. This behavior is really driven by danger learning and avoidance. They gather around these dead crows as a means to hopefully identify what killed it so they don't meet the same fate. The danger in applying either those words, ritual or funeral, is that it comes with a lot of human baggage, right, in terms of what those things mean to us. I think when we step back, yes, this behavior really qualifies as both a ritual and a funeral, meaning that they do it in this predictable way. There's this sort of course of behaviors. That's the sort of ritual part. The funeral part is that they gather around this dead individual. I would say we don't know if they're grieving. I mean, certainly they respond in complex ways. So for example, in the early breeding season, they'll often attack these dead crows. People would say, clearly that's not, that's not grieving, right? We were filming a little thing, I think it was for, for Good Morning America. So we were out on the University of Washington campus, and we were with the film crew, and we had set out one of our taxidermied crows under a cherry tree. So this was early spring, it was April. We were just waiting to see a behavior that at this point, you know, I had seen hundreds of times. Bird comes in, alarm calls, other birds come in, they're all kind of either flying around in the air, perched in the trees, and then it comes to a close after 15 minutes or so. But that's not what happened. The first bird comes in and it, it lands on the ground, and I had seen that before, and it starts to kind of cautiously approach the dead crow. 
At this point, I'm thinking, this is kind of strange, but sometimes it just takes a minute to register. You know, you can really see them needing to, like, really eye that dead body and inspect it. But it, it keeps approaching, and right before it makes contact with the body, it assumes this really particular kind of posturing that they only do when they are courting. They kind of pop their tail up so it's, it's really erect. They droop their wings down so their wingtips are almost touching the ground. And as soon as it assumed that posture, I knew something very different was about to happen. And sure enough, after it assumes that posture, it hopped on that dead crow and it started to copulate with it. And we were all just supremely taken aback because it's, it's a really sort of violent-looking act. They're moving around a lot. They're thrashing. And somebody asked if, if the crow was perhaps giving the dead crow CPR. Animals can respond in really complex, sometimes counterintuitive ways. And human beings are, of course, no exception to this. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't also capable of those other behaviors or emotional responses. Shortly after that crow started engaging in that behavior, another crow came in and immediately alarm called. And that sort of seemed to snap the copulating crow out of this behavior and it jumped off the dead crow and it alighted into the tree and then the funeral behavior sort of proceeded as normal. Essentially, crows are flying primates. They have managed in a brain that is the size of a walnut that has not even close to the surface area that the mammalian brain has, because when you picture a mammalian brain, right, it's all wrinkly. So avian brains don't have those wrinkles. They're totally smooth. So somehow in this brain that is so much smaller, they have managed to pack in a lot of the infrastructure that the really smart mammals have, right? And they're capable of, of all of these same kinds of things, things like causal reasoning and mental time travel and future planning. There are so many spaces when it comes to experiencing the natural world that are just not accessible to most people. But crows are really available to anybody. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is the BBC Earth podcast, and this week we're looking at some really extraordinary animal behaviour. When you're talking rituals in the animal kingdom, there's one activity which brings out the best in all of us. Finding love. I think one of the, the things that really sparked my interest was peacocks. Meow. 
most everybody is familiar with what they look like, and the males have the large trains, and they fan them out. But it turns out that even that story of the peacock is not as straightforward. That's not the only display they do. And males not only display their tail, but then they use it like a satellite dish to transmit infrasonic signals to females as well. The vibration of the feathers, the way they vibrate them, creates the sound. And they're doing it at a frequency that we can't hear. When it comes to vocalizing, we often think about birds, but really mice are the singers of the animal kingdom. Male mice, they uh, sing in ultrasonic frequency, so higher than we can hear. It's not as melodious as we, we might think of as a bird song, and it's not as uh, impactful as we might think of as a whale song, but in terms of complexity of sound and structure, it's equally as intricate. I'm Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Arizona. Jennifer wrote a book called Wild Connection, analysing animal courtship and asking if we humans might be able to learn something from them. What prompted me to write the book really stemmed from the tragic nature of my dating life. <laughs> I was reading a paper about how female chickens, when they detect deception in a male chicken, they just leave. There's no conversation. There's no wondering what they did wrong. She just looks for a different male. And I thought, okay, how are chickens picking better mates than I am? And so I had this idea that can we take some of these lessons and apply it to our own lives and be more successful? Rituals open the door for authentic behavior and also for, for cheating. So, for example, a nursery web spider. Nothing says I love you to a nursery web spider like a bundle of food wrapped in a pretty white silk package. And the prettier the wrapping, the more likely the female is willing to accept it. And this gift is basically like a request. Here, I'll give you this if you'll mate with me. Sometimes, though, males are deceptive, so they either wrap a twig in silk, or even worse, they actually collect an insect, they suck the inside out, and then they just wrap the shell, the exoskeleton. Some females actually weigh the package quite carefully to assess, is it weigh enough to hold an insect? Or am I being hoodwinked? Certainly some males get away with it, otherwise you wouldn't have about 30% of males attempting to cheat. And so when she unwraps it and discovers an empty exoskeleton of what was once a wonderful meal, she terminates copulation immediately. All kinds of mating rituals, whether it's singing, dancing, even something as simple as flirting, because frankly, flirting is a mating ritual. It's really information gathering. Dancing rituals give you a lot of information about physical ability, physical stamina, so your health. So a lot of these behaviors in animals and people uh, start with some kind of physical display. So the sand-dwelling spider, the male has this cave tunnel, and he sits at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's like a man cave. And the female comes, and she sticks her legs in through the opening and wiggles them around, you know, like she's being a little leggy and flirty. 
and if he approves of the way that she has moved her legs, <laughs> she's allowed to come in. They mate, and then he leaves. He gives her his cave, which is quite risky for him. He's got to now be out in the open and go build another cave. So I like this one because, first of all, the female has to do the dancing, and, and I just like the idea of this male sand-dwelling spider evaluating, well, do I like the way she moved her legs? Okay, you can come in. And then he gives her his house. It's wonderful. <laughs> The beautiful thing about being human is that there's so many traits that people can find attractive that if you're just who you are, there's there's somebody for you. That's not the case for an elk or Mediterranean fruit fly. I mean, they dance and spread their pheromones and they sing to the female. And in the end, if his hairs on the top of his head aren't perfectly symmetrical, he doesn't get to mate. I, I tend not to anthropomorphize animals, but I tend to zoomorphize people. And so by thinking about some of the ways that animals approach their love lives, I think we can have a little bit more fun. A lot of what we think of as ritual in the human world is based around religion and spirituality, which we tend to think of as uniquely human concepts. The urge to see more in the world than what's directly in front of our eyes, the search for wonder and majesty and meaning and for things above and beyond the mortal plane. Animals, like us, may look at the stars, but as far as we know so far, we're the only ones who look beyond them. But human religious festivals are often intricately tied back to the natural world. A lot of things that we consider sacred are natural events. The coming of a new spring, sunrises, rainbows and the miraculous flow of a mighty life-giving river. The Nile is probably one of the most iconic rivers of all time. Certainly it makes you think of history, of geography, of animals, of pharaohs. A great story of a river that goes through a desert bringing life to where there would otherwise be none. I'm Lydia Baines. I was the producer of the Nile programme for the Rivers series, the three-parter on three great rivers, the Mississippi, the Amazon and the Nile. Without the Nile, Egypt wouldn't exist. I mean, it's, 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 the Sahara Desert is one of the greatest deserts in the world and for anything to live there, let alone huge civilizations 5,000 years ago, it's just outstanding, really. I mean, even today we struggle making civilization in desert work. And actually the Nile's flow had such an important impact on, on their life that years that the Nile didn't flow, entire civilizations would actually collapse and pharaohs would be overthrown and everything was dependent on the river. It consists of two Niles, the White Nile, which starts down in uh, Uganda, and the Blue Nile, which starts in Ethiopia. The Blue Nile is formed from monsoon rain in the Ethiopian highlands and it's one of the most stormy regions in the world, the Ethiopian highlands, and rain just falls and falls and falls during the wet season and it all collates and, and rushes down the, the mountains. And on its way, it picks up a whole load of volcanic soil, which is what makes it so rich and fertile in this muddy brown colour and it eventually ends up becoming the main component of the water that reaches Egypt. And it's actually the reason that the ancient civilization was able to thrive so successfully, taking all this volcanic soil 
from the highlands all the way 3,000 kilometers north. The Blue Nile is believed by most of Ethiopians as the holy water. That voice you're hearing is Henok. My name is Henok Tagai. I am a tourist guide. He lives in Addis Ababa, the capital, but being a tourist guide means he gets to travel the length and breadth of Ethiopia. I have a family and two beautiful daughters. Many believed the Blue Nile is the same river mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Some Ethiopians believe that the Garden of Eden is actually found in Ethiopia and that one of the rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden, uh, the River Gion, is actually one of the upper reaches of the Blue Nile. So it's actually a very sacred and revered river. This is how it is perceived the Blue Nile, as a very holy water, a source of wisdom and power. It's a river of rebirth. Um, which is one of the reasons that these mass baptisms that take place in its waters is so such an important thing for them. One of the Christian religious ceremonies is called Timket, which is a celebration of originally Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. Timket is one of the most colourful festivals celebrated by most of the people of the Christian religion. It's a mass baptism where people are reborn. It happens once a year, same time every year. It's also regarded as the time when family and friends will forgive each other and come together and slates are wiped clean. Timket happens all over the country, but one of the most spectacular celebrations happens in the city of Gondor in the north. The river here is the Lesser Angreb, one of a huge network of headwaters all over the Ethiopian highlands, which feed into Lake Tana, where the Blue Nile begins. There's an ancient palace that has a moat and they divert the water into the moat and they fill it up for this one day a year. It was the old palace of the King Facilidis. It's a beautiful old, it looks like a church. One of the most beautiful places to be, I would say, the ambience of the compound is so beautiful. The surrounding area has been taken over by these huge trees that have got roots that go all the way around the, the walls. It really does look like something out of biblical times. You have to, to pinch yourself to remind yourself that you're in modern day. The feeling, the vibe around Gonda is mesmerizing. I would say it is a place to be once in a lifetime. It's a very special place. And locals and actually people from all over Ethiopia travel for this mass religious ceremony. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of worshippers will come together. For the Ethiopians, this is it's, it's bigger than Christmas. Most Ethiopian Christians will be at their best. So you can imagine how people look forward to this day, to look at their best dressing the white clothes of traditional Ethiopian textiles. There is a saying in Ethiopia, what is This is the Amharic language. Uh, it is a dress that is not used for timkat, deserves to be torn to tatters. 
while the religious ceremony is going on, which is overnight, no normal folk are allowed inside the walls. It's just the people giving the religious blessings. The priests will bless the water and then there's just a mass of thousands of Ethiopians trying to be first in the water. Everyone's happy. I mean, it's a, for, for them, it really is the most important day of the year. Tinkat literally means immersion in the water. The most important thing is you get a bit of water in your body. And the feeling when you get that is quite different. I think people take from it different things. I think, I mean, some people would just jump straight in and out and that was their moment done, but a load of people would just stay in. There were some very, very pious people that for them it was a really intimate moment between them and, and their God, um, which, was, which was beautiful to see, actually. Rituals are everywhere. With animals, we can see what they do, but why they do it, what meaning they see behind their actions, remains a mystery. Elephants, like some other animals, bury their dead and will revisit the grave sites many months after the body has gone. Do elephants experience something like reverence? Chimpanzees have been spotted dancing under waterfalls. Could a chimp possibly feel awe? or the bubbling joy at simply being alive. Some would say all of this is disgraceful anthropomorphism, assigning human characteristics to things that are very much not human. But perhaps that's not such a bad idea. At one point in time, we used to think humans were the only animals which used tools, but of course we now know that's not true. We used to think it was language separated us from the animals, but animal communication is more sophisticated than you would believe. Every time we draw a line in the sand between us and the creatures we think are so different, some new piece of research emerges, sweeping that line away. If we wonder at the spectacle of the full moon, if we mourn the passing of a loved one, then isn't it possible that animals are doing something similar? You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and thanks so much for joining me. If you liked what you heard, then please do subscribe. Give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts from. Tweet about us. Tell your friends. And, of course, join me again next week when we'll be playing a game of hide-and-seek. Some of the stories you heard in this podcast came from the storytellers and makers of BBC Earth's latest landmark programme, Dynasties. Narrated by Sir David Attenborough, we follow the lives of five extraordinary animals, each in a heroic struggle against rivals and against the forces of nature, fighting for their own survival and for the future of their dynasties. Visit bbcearth.com forward slash dynasties for more information on when you can catch the series in your country. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.